By the summer of 1779, it had been four years since British troops first clashed with American militiamen at Lexington and Concord, and then at the Battle of Bunker Hill. It had been three years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Battle of Brooklyn, or Long Island, depending on which account you read. It had been two years since the Americans lost their capital city of Philadelphia, and a year since they regained it. If the American army was forced to recall bitter defeats at Brooklyn, White Plains, Brandywine, and Germantown, it could also remember victories at Trenton, Princeton, Saratoga, and most recently, Stony Point. In a purely military sense, the British army had pushed the American army all over the landscape. The victories at Trenton, Princeton, and Stony Point were inspirational to the cause, but relatively minor in the overall campaign. The surprising outcomes at Trenton and Princeton dealt painful blows to the British, without a doubt, but they certainly weren't serious enough to cause major changes in British plans or leadership. The most recent engagement, at a fort called Stony Point along the Hudson River in New York, had been a rousing American success. A force led by units from Maryland conducted a nighttime raid that caught the British soldiers in the fort totally by surprise. It was the last battle in the North between the Marylanders and the men who were becoming their informal rivals, the Highlanders of the 71st Regiment of Foot. But despite the success of the midnight raid, the Americans gave the fort back to the British just three days after they took it. The Americans simply didn't have enough men to hold it. It was only the overwhelming American victory at Saratoga that had made a serious difference thus far. It had eliminated a big part of the British Army. It had knocked one of the top British generals, John Burgoyne, out of the war. It had kept the British from owning the Hudson River and cutting the new American states in half. And, most importantly, it had incentivized France to become a full American ally and send troops and ships to help the cause. Those troops and ships were increasingly focused on the new southern theater of the war. Sporadic fighting had been happening in the southern colonies for four years, but it had really ramped up in the winter and spring of 1779. The following year, the South would be the entire focus of the war. But for now, in the final summer of battle in the North, fights popped up like small fires all over the northern colonies. American Commander-in-Chief George Washington ordered General John Sullivan to take an army to the western frontier of New York and Pennsylvania to attack Native American villages. The British had made alliances with tribes up and down the colonies and convinced many to fight against the colonists. In the north, the most prominent was a collection of tribes called the Iroquois Confederacy by the French and the League of Five Nations by the British. Sullivan spent the summer of 1779 conducting a scorched earth campaign. He destroyed villages and burned crops, and capped off the campaign with a victory at the Battle of Newtown, outside the present-day city of Elmira, New York. Sullivan's campaign temporarily ended the threat from the tribes in the West. Meanwhile, the British were using similar tactics in the East. American spies were known to operate around Black Rock Harbor in Connecticut, and the British decided to send a message. In early July 1779, a British raiding force landed on the coast near the town of Fairfield. 
The British intended to attack Black Rock Fort, but when local defenders burned the bridge that led to the fort, the British turned their attention to the town. They set fire to nearly every building and virtually leveled the town. Three days later, they burned the neighboring town of Norwalk. But as summer transitioned to fall in 1779, the focus of the war increasingly fell on the southern colonies. The British had captured the port city of Savannah, Georgia, and then had expanded their reach inland. But controlling the backcountry areas of Georgia and South Carolina was not as easy as they expected. They had captured and then given up the small city of Augusta, Georgia. The British troops who had captured it retreated back to the stronghold of Savannah, and that was where the Americans and their new French allies focused their attention in the fall of 1779. The British held the city, and the Americans wanted it back. From Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution, with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is Episode 5, The Battle of Camden. This podcast is brought to you by the historic Camden Foundation. You might be familiar with American revolutionary events like the Boston Tea Party, Bunker Hill, the ride of Paul Revere, and George Washington crossing the Delaware. But what about events in the South? The Battle of Camden was one of the darkest days for the American army, yet it was a crucial turning point for the American cause. Visit Camden, South Carolina at the heart of the Southern Campaign. The historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield and the Longleaf Pine Preserve, where thousands fought and hundreds fell. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. September 1779, Savannah, Georgia. Major General Benjamin Lincoln and the American Southern Army had lost the city of Savannah to the British nine months earlier. Since then, units from Lincoln's army had fought the British at Augusta, Georgia, Briar Creek, Georgia, Kettle Creek, Georgia, Port Royal, South Carolina, and Stono River, South Carolina. After those battles in the swamps or back country, the British had concentrated their force back in Savannah. Now, the American army was going to try to reclaim Savannah. General Lincoln and 5,000 men, 4,000 of whom were French, laid siege to the city, and they weren't alone in the effort. The French Navy had finally arrived and blocked the harbor. Lincoln's artillery and the French fleet pounded Savannah day and night for nearly a month but the British commander in the city refused to surrender. Out of desperation, the combined American and French force assaulted the city. The attack failed, and the American army lost a man who would be enshrined as a legend. 
Polish Brigadier General Kazimir Pulaski was hit by cannon fire during the attack, and he died a few days later. Pulaski, a volunteer who traveled from Europe to join the American cause, would be called the father of the American cavalrymen. His training and leadership of horse soldiers was as important as Baron Friedrich von Steuben's was to the American infantry. After the unsuccessful assault, General Lincoln abandoned the siege and led his men 75 miles up the coast to their base in Charleston, South Carolina. It was now the third week of October, 1779, and the French fleet sailed away from Savannah to get out of the way of the winter storms that would soon start sweeping across the American coastline. And that set the stage for the beginning of the next phase of the war. The British controlled Savannah, Georgia. The American Southern Army was isolated at Charleston, South Carolina, and the French fleet had vacated the area. It was the perfect time for the arrival of the British Main Army. General Henry Clinton had been commander-in-chief of the British Army for nearly two years, but he had yet to lead his army in a major battle. American commander George Washington refused to take the bait that Clinton continually dangled in front of him. Washington wouldn't commit his men to an open battle. He would only fight on his own terms, and thus there had been no large-scale battles in the North for two years, not since the battles outside Philadelphia in the fall of 1777. After 21 months of inaction, General Clinton was done with the stalemate. If Washington refused to fight, then Clinton would go south and activate a new theater of war. The prevailing wisdom of the British high command was that the southern colonies were full of people who were loyal to Britain. If the British main army showed the people that it meant business, the loyalist supporters would rise up in force. So, as George Washington and the American army in the north moved into their winter camp in Morristown, New Jersey, in November of 1779, Henry Clinton and the British army prepared to sail south. In December 1779, General Clinton and an army of 14,000 soldiers sailed down the coast and landed below Charleston, South Carolina. British troops at Savannah marched north, united with Clinton's army, and together they made preparations to attack the American Southern Army at Charleston. Clinton had attempted to capture Charleston three and a half years earlier, but his attempt had been by sea. His ships had attacked Fort Sullivan on Sullivan's Island at the mouth of Charleston Harbor, but they were not able to dislodge the American defenders. Now, the British Army already had a foothold in the south at Savannah. There was no need to try to fight through the islands at the mouth of Charleston Harbor to take the city. Clinton and his principal lieutenant, General Charles Cornwallis, marched their army up the coast to try to trap the American army in Charleston. Meanwhile, up at Morristown, New Jersey, General Washington knew of Clinton's movements. Washington sent waves of troops to the south to reinforce the American base at Charleston. The first detachments arrived in the early spring of 1780, just in time to get trapped. By early April, the British Army had a stranglehold on the area. British Commander Clinton's army of about 14,000 men surrounded the city, and British warships successfully did what they couldn't do three and a half years earlier. They controlled Charleston Harbor. 
The American army of around 5,000 men was outnumbered, surrounded, and trapped in the city with no hope of rescue or further reinforcement. The British regularly shelled the city with cannon fire until on May 12, 1780, the American commander in the city, General Benjamin Lincoln, surrendered. Before the main American army in the north had even made it out of its winter camp, the main American army in the south was gone. One of the last detachments that Washington sent south from his main army that spring was a group of about 2,000 soldiers, seven units from Maryland and one from Delaware. They were some of Washington's best and most trusted soldiers, and they were badly needed in the South. But to get there, it would be a test of endurance. They made almost no preparations for the march. They just grabbed their stuff and started walking. They walked more than 1,000 miles, with very little food, and many had no shoes. They arrived in Virginia in early June to discover that Charleston had fallen to the British. The American officers discussed three options. They could stay in Virginia, or march all the way back to Washington's main army, or keep marching towards South Carolina. They knew they were needed in South Carolina, so they began another long march in the deepening heat and humidity of early summer. While they traveled, the British expanded inland, took control of small settlements and existing forts, and turned them into military outposts. The British Army had accomplished an impressive feat. It controlled the two most important coastal cities in the American South, and from those bases, it could extend its control out into the backcountry and low country and dominate a region like it never had before in the war. That expansion set the stage for the first major battle in the South. And along the way, the most controversial battle of the war happened near the border of South Carolina and North Carolina. Shortly after the British captured Charleston, overall commander Henry Clinton placed General Charles Cornwallis in charge of the Southern Department of the British War Effort. Cornwallis immediately assembled a field army of 2,500 men and set out to conquer the interior of South Carolina. As Cornwallis marched inland, he learned that there was one last regiment of American Continental troops in the state. The 2,000 men from Maryland and Delaware had not yet arrived, and the rest of the units that had been dispatched by George Washington had learned of the fall of Charleston and retreated back up into North Carolina before they ran headlong into the much larger British force. Colonel Abraham Buford's Regiment of Virginia Continentals was one of the last to learn about the capture of Charleston. By the time he turned his men around to head toward North Carolina, Cornwallis's army was already making steady progress into the low country of South Carolina. Cornwallis sent Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton to capture Buford's regiment. Tarleton led units of dragoons, the elite horse soldiers of the British Army, and he already had a reputation as an aggressive battlefield commander. Tarleton set off with 270 men on a pounding ride to catch Buford's regiment. As Tarleton's column drew close, he sent a note to Buford that informed the American colonel of the situation and asked him to surrender. 
resistance being in vain to prevent the effusion of human blood, I make offers which can never be repeated. You are now almost encompassed by a corps of light troops on horseback. Half of that number are infantry with cannon, the rest cavalry. Earl Cornwallis is likewise within a short march with nine British battalions. I warn you of the temerity of further inimical proceedings, and I hold out the following conditions, which are nearly the same as were accepted by Charlestown. But if any persons attempt to fly after this flag is received, rest assured that their rank shall not protect them if taken from rigorous treatment. Tarleton listed five conditions for surrender, and then closed the message with a warning. I expect an answer to these propositions as soon as possible. If they are accepted, you will order every person under your command to pile his arms in one hour after you receive this flag. If you are rash enough to reject them, the blood be upon your head. Colonel Buford sent a one-sentence response. Sir, I reject your proposals and shall defend myself to the last extremity. Buford sent his wagons of supplies forward and arrayed his roughly 350 soldiers for battle. Tarleton divided his men into three columns and attacked. Even though Tarleton's men were outnumbered, the speed of their horses was no match for the Americans, who were mostly on foot. Buford's regiment could only fire one volley before it was overrun by British horsemen. Tarleton's men charged through the Americans repeatedly until the American lines were completely broken and the soldiers were scattering in chaos. Buford later claimed that he tried to surrender at that point, but Tarleton's men kept attacking. Buford himself escaped the battlefield, but most of his regiment did not. Of his 350 men, 113 were killed, 150 were wounded and left on the field, and 53 were captured and sent to Charleston. That was 316 out of 350. The engagement was called the Battle of the Waxaws, and it became legendarily infamous almost immediately. The story of the battle became one of massacre, and Tarleton became a devil. The battle was chaotic and confusing, and the earliest reports of the fight were even more confusing. The story became this. Tarleton's men had intentionally slaughtered American soldiers who had laid down their weapons in surrender. The Americans seized on that story and turned it into a propaganda piece against Tarleton and the British Army. For more than 200 years, the legend of the event known as Buford's Massacre persisted, and it was highly dramatized for the Hollywood movie The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson. But in the early 2000s, South Carolina historian Jim Pycooch discovered new information about the battle. The information was buried in an archive and had essentially been misfiled, so it had been overlooked or forgotten or simply unseen for generations. The new information cast doubt on the story that Tarleton was a butcher who ordered the destruction of men who were trying to surrender. But like many events in history, the full truth still is and probably will remain a mystery. In May of 1780, the Americans believed the massacre story, and they used it to rally support over the course of the summer as the Continental Army regrouped and made its push into South Carolina. 
Two months after the Battle of the Waxhaws, Major General Horatio Gates arrived in North Carolina to lead the American Army in the South. Gates was British, a lifelong soldier from Essex. He served with British forces in the American theater of the Seven Years' War, a theater that was called the French and Indian War in America. After that, his military career stalled. He became frustrated with his inability to advance, so he sold his officer's commission, moved to Virginia, and started a plantation. He had known George Washington, also a plantation owner in Virginia, from their service in the French and Indian War. When war between Britain and the American colonies became inevitable in 1775, Gates contacted Washington, volunteered for service in the new American army, and received a commission as a brigadier general. Two years later, Gates became a hero for the American side after he led American forces in a surprise victory at Saratoga. When the focus of the war shifted to the South, the Continental Congress appointed Gates commander of the Southern Department without consulting Commander-in-Chief George Washington. Gates took control of the assorted Continental Army units that had been sent South by Washington and the local militia units that had been operating in the area. He quickly identified his first target, Camden, South Carolina. It was a key outpost in a string of forts and supply depots that led from Charleston on the coast up through the middle of the state towards Charlotte, North Carolina. From Gates's position north of Charlotte, he had two routes to get down to Camden, the short road and the long road. The short road had more challenges, but it also allowed him to link up with an important North Carolina militia unit that would be needed for an attack. Gates took the short road and marched for two weeks through the scorching heat and humidity of late July and early August. By mid-August, his army, which had added the North Carolina militia unit and a unit from Virginia, was camped just a few miles north of Camden. The British commander at Camden was well aware of the Continental Army's movements, and he had sent word to General Cornwallis to ask for help. While General Gates camped outside Camden and formulated his plan of attack, General Cornwallis arrived at Camden. When Cornwallis received a report on the situation, he decided not to play defense. He decided to move against Gates. At the exact same time, Gates decided to move against him. Both commanders ordered a night march to start at about 10 p.m. on August 15, 1780. They used the same road, and they were on a collision course. Gates and the American army moved south on the Great Wagon Road, and Cornwallis and the British army moved north. Both commanders placed their horsemen out in front to lead the way. For the Americans, it was the 60 men of Colonel Charles Armand's cavalry. For the British, it was 180 troopers of Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton's dragoons. There was a full moon on that humid August night, and the sandy road shone white beneath their horses' hooves. The road cut through a forest of tall pine trees that cast long shadows in the middle of the night. On the edges of the forest, both east and west, there were swamps. The road was the only good way in or out of the area. Neither army could flank the other, 
there would be no opportunities for clever maneuvers or sneak attacks this time. If a battle happened, it would be a straight-ahead fistfight, and only the stronger side would win. At about two o'clock in the morning, the groups of horsemen spotted each other. As always, Tarleton was the aggressor. His larger force charged the smaller American unit and immediately drove the Americans back. But then the British horsemen took fire from a unit of American militiamen who were marching through the pine trees next to the road. British infantry units hurried ahead to support Tarleton's horse soldiers and started the fight with a brief, confusing skirmish. Officers from both sides were able to separate the men and bring them back into line to assemble in proper battle formation. American Commander Gates quickly convened a council of war. Technically, there might have been a chance to retreat, but as one general pointed out, the only practical option was to fight. So now, two armies squared off in the darkness along the Great Wagon Road. The Americans had the larger force, with a little more than 4,000 men. They spread out in a traditional line of battle, with veteran Continental soldiers on one end and volunteer militiamen on the other. The Continental soldiers who anchored one side were men from Maryland and Delaware. Next to them was a North Carolina unit, then a Virginia unit, and finally the light infantry on the far end. In reserve behind the main line straddling the road was another unit from Maryland. About a hundred yards away, through the huge pine trees, stood the British Army. General Cornwallis lined up his 2,200 men to match the American line. He had a combination of British regulars and local volunteers. And then, in reserve, he had two battalions of Fraser's Highlanders, whom he, Cornwallis, personally commanded in the battle. At the first light of dawn, with a thick fog hovering over the ground, the battle began. The American artillery opened fire, and the British started the ground attack. According to General Cornwallis, in moments, fighting commenced across the entire battlefield. I directed Lieutenant Colonel Webster to begin the attack, which was done with great vigor. And in a few minutes, the action was general along the whole front. The daylight was thin and pale. There was no wind to break up the stifling humidity of a battlefield that was encased in pine trees and surrounded by swamps. Ground fog hovered in the trees, and now it was clouded with the gun smoke of thousands of muskets. It was at this time a dead calm with a little haziness in the air, which, preventing the smoke from rising, occasioned so thick a darkness that it was difficult to see the effect of a very heavy and well-supported fire on both sides. As both sides absorbed the first volleys, American General Gates ordered the Virginia and North Carolina militiamen on his left flank to attack and he sent the Reserve Maryland unit to back them up. At the same time, the Virginians opened fire, and the 1st Maryland Brigade rushed off to support them. Gates sent the 2nd Maryland Brigade and the Delaware Regiment forward on the opposite end of the battlefield. The Americans attacked from both ends of their formation. With superior numbers, the plan seemed sensible, but the execution failed miserably on the left flank where the militiamen were stationed. Gates reported later that he was astonished to see his left wing give way, though it shouldn't have been that surprising. 
the Virginia and North Carolina militiamen didn't have a fraction of the training or battle experience of the regular Continental soldiers. The Virginians fired their first volley. The British regulars absorbed the volley and then fixed their bayonets and charged. The sight of hundreds of screaming British redcoats racing forward with steel daggers caused the Virginia militiamen to throw down their muskets and run. Their panic infected the North Carolina militiamen next to them, and they turned and ran. Gates and some of his officers tried to stop the fleeing militiamen, but the effort was hopeless. About a thousand terrified men were stampeding back toward the officers on their horses, and there was no way the officers could turn them around. The militiamen slammed into the 1st Maryland Brigade, which was hurrying to support them. The Marylanders opened their ranks and let the militiamen escape, then closed their ranks and formed a wall that stopped the charge of the British infantry. The Marylanders held their ground for the moment, but they were now in a terrible spot. General Edward Stevens of the Virginia militia painted the picture in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. This gave the enemy the opportunity of pushing their whole force against the Maryland line, who was not able to stand them long. And in a very little time, the whole was in the utmost confusion, and the greatest panic prevailed that I ever had the opportunity of seeing. The wholesale panic was isolated on the American left flank, but the effects of losing nearly a quarter of the army in a matter of seconds could not be overcome. The effects tumbled down the American line like dominoes. On the other side of the battle, on the American right flank, the situation was only slightly better and only for a short time. Major General Baron Johann de Cobb commanded the 2nd Maryland Brigade and the Delaware Regiment that anchored the flank. There were no militiamen on that side of the American line, so the veterans from Maryland and Delaware didn't face the same sort of chaos that plagued the 1st Maryland Brigade on the other side of the line. But what they did face was a force of local volunteers, Irish volunteers, British regulars, and Fraser's Highlanders who outnumbered them. And that was before the inevitable domino effect crashed into them. Like several volunteers who became prominent leaders of the American army, Baron Johann de Cobb had approached American diplomats Silas Dean and Benjamin Franklin in Paris. The Americans promised the Bavarian soldier a commission as a major general, and de Cobb traveled to America. He suffered through the terrible winter of 1777-1778 at Valley Forge with General George Washington's main army. When the Southern Theater of the War opened in earnest in 1780 and Washington sent waves of troops to the South, he gave de Cobb command of the Maryland Division, which was comprised of the men from Maryland and Delaware. At the Battle of Camden, American commander Horatio Gates sent one of the two brigades of Maryland troops to the left flank to shore up the calamitous rout of the militiamen. The other Maryland brigade and the Delaware regiment anchored the right flank and stayed under the direct command of their general, Baron de Cobb. As the fighting intensified across the entire line of battle, the men from Maryland and Delaware on the right flank surged forward with their commander. General de Cobb threw himself into the battle along with everyone else. The British line across from them held strong, 
and a fierce firefight erupted. The Americans fell back, rallied, advanced again, and then stayed steady. But behind the British lines, General Cornwallis diagnosed the critical condition of the American army. On the Americans' left flank, the single brigade of Marylanders was about to break. On the Americans' right flank, the units from Maryland and Delaware were bending and couldn't hold much longer. Cornwallis sent in the Highlanders and the cavalry of Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton. One of the Highlander battalions went left and the other went right. On the right, the Highlanders helped to press against the 1st Maryland Brigade, which was on its own. On the left, the Highlanders joined in the effort to break the lines of the 2nd Maryland Brigade and the Delaware Regiment. And in the middle, between those two simultaneous but separate engagements, there was a gap. That gap was basically the Great Wagon Road, which cut the battlefield in half. General Cornwallis ordered Tarleton's horsemen to charge through the gap in the American line and assault the rear of the American formation. Tarleton's column raced up the Great Wagon Road, blasted through the gap, and split into two groups. One went to the right and attacked the 1st Maryland Brigade. The other went to the left and attacked the 2nd Maryland Brigade and the Delaware Regiment. When the 1st Maryland Brigade saw the British cavalrymen galloping up behind them, they finally broke formation and retreated. On the other side of the road, General DeCobb and the 2nd Maryland Brigade and Delaware Regiment couldn't see that the American line was collapsing in disarray. Fog and gun smoke obscured the action, and the units kept fighting even after General DeCobb fell with multiple severe wounds. At about that time, Tarleton's cavalry slammed into the men from Maryland and Delaware. Baron de Cobb, being still ignorant of their left wing and center, owing to the thickness of the air, made a vigorous charge with a regiment of Continental Infantry, and, when wounded and taken, would scarcely believe that General Gates was defeated. It was only when de Cobb's men saw the signature green coats of Tarleton's horse soldiers that they knew they had no choice but to run for their lives. After this last effort of the Continentals, Rout and slaughter ensued in every quarter. The men from Maryland and Delaware who were able to waded into the swamp next to them and forced their way through the muck to escape. Other soldiers sprinted up the great wagon road or dove into the swamp on the other side of the battlefield. Tarleton and his men pursued the Americans for 22 miles up the road before finally stopping when their horses were exhausted. The result of the Battle of Camden was a complete and total British victory, and the thorough and utter destruction of Major General Horatio Gates's army. Several American officers, including overall Commander Horatio Gates, who tried to rally the fleeing militiamen, became swept up and carried along by the masses. By the time the officers were able to cut their way out of the throng, they were several miles away from the battlefield, and they missed the killing stroke by the British Army. Gates didn't witness the end of the battle. After he extricated himself from the fleeing militiamen, he heard the sounds of the battle stop, and he assumed it was all over. He continued riding north to Charlotte, and then on to Hillsborough, where the North Carolina legislature was in session. He intended to request supplies and reinforcements and head back down to South Carolina. But his reputation 
was just as destroyed as his army. He didn't intentionally flee the battlefield, but when he appeared, alone, 180 miles north of one of the worst losses of the entire war, he was branded a coward, and his reputation never recovered. Down in the pine trees north of Camden, there was devastation. Well over a thousand men were wounded on the battlefield. On the British side, the officers of General Cornwallis's army reported 68 men killed, 245 wounded, and 11 missing. On the American side, the chaos of the battle and the frenzy of their retreat made it impossible to get accurate numbers. But the estimate was 250 dead, nearly 700 captured, including General DeCobb, who later died of his wounds, and hundreds missing. The rest had fled in all directions. The two brigades of Maryland Continentals suffered the most. All told, including officers, non-commissioned officers, privates, and musicians like drummer boys and fifers, they counted more than 800 captured, missing, and killed. Some of the dead were left out in the open. Others were buried in shallow graves where they fell. They were covered in a few inches of sandy soil, over which generations of pine needles would disguise their grave sites. It was the second time in just four months that the American army in the South had been wiped out. In May of 1780, nearly 6,000 soldiers had been forced to surrender after the siege of Charleston. Now, just three months later, in August 1780, an army of 4,000 had been routed at Camden. News of the disastrous battle traveled north, and the status of many of the soldiers was unknown. Maryland Congressman John Henry Jr. wrote a letter to the Maryland governor two weeks after the battle. The fate of the action on the morning of the 16th of August you must have heard. It is a melancholy and distressing blow for Maryland and a ruinous and destructive one to the southern states. I wish it was in my power to give you the fate of our gallant countrymen and to relieve the pain and anxiety of those distressed families who wait with a sorrowful impatience to hear the sacrifice of their dearest connections. But it is not in my power. Reports say that many officers fell. I trust this voluminous catalog will considerably diminish when we have a more accurate account. Till then, or the return of a flag sent by General Gates, we must remain in the dark. Next time on Mission History, for the Americans, some of the darkest days are followed by some of the brightest. A force of rugged mountain men win a shocking victory. A new American commander with a new strategy arrives in the South. A South Carolina militia leader wages a guerrilla war in the countryside. And the Americans get revenge for the losses at Camden. The tide begins to turn next time on Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the historic Camden Foundation. In this episode, you heard Robert Newmark Jones 
as Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton, Daniel Johnson as General Edward Stevens, and Tony Young as Maryland Congressman John Henry Jr. This series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer. Our executive producers are Carrie Briggs for the Historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code. Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotopish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Pycooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davey, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening.